this, narrator advises that the listener digest the following as entertainment. The showrunners behind it are neither six-figure filmmakers nor professional critics. They are... Casually Critical. Hello and welcome to Casually Critical, the podcast show starring two pals who love to talk about storytelling. I'm your host, Daniel Carpenter. Ooh, and I'm James Newton, your spooky Halloween co-host. <laughs> Happy Halloween. Yes. Uh, today we are going to have a special treat in case our title did not give it away, nor our social media. We are going to be talking about a hit sci-fi movie from the late 70s. And no, I'm not talking about Star Wars. We're going to be discussing Ridley Scott's Alien. Oh boy, everyone buckle up. It's time for some classic horror thriller sci-fi stuff. Mm. This is the good stuff right here. But I must warn you, if you haven't seen this film already, Daniel and I are going to be diving into some spoilers. We're going to be going into deep space. And from there, all bets are off. You better be careful. I hope yes. that you packed your incinerator. Yes. Uh, right now it's non-spoilers, but as we get later into the episode, as they say, in the podcast world, no one can hear you scream at spoilers. So we're going to dive into this amazing masterpiece of a film. Alien should have been a very awkward movie. Came out in 1979, which may not mean a lot to you guys, except that the first Star Wars movie came out two years beforehand in 1977. And then one year after it came out, The Empire Strikes Back would come out in 1980. Alien was originally going to have a super small budget of about $4 million. And then Ridley Scott was so bored waiting on the budget to be approved that he ended up storyboarding the entire thing. And based on the concept art, based on the storyboarding art, they actually decided to double that budget to $8 million. So if people think that concept artists don't do squat, they're absolutely wrong. It got this movie's budget doubled. Yeah, and oh my gosh, the design in this movie, uh, not something I was expecting to highlight, but it's very, very distinct. Yeah. I love all the tubes and the wires and the tangling cords and just the mm. atmosphere that the design creates in this movie is really, really excellent. Those of you who are visual designers, set designers, costume designers, anyone who just appreciates a good distinct visual style in a film, I would highly recommend this movie too because that is something they knock out of the park that a lot of horror movies don't at all. They yeah. don't cover that very well. Absolutely. Before we get too deep into the weeds, James, would you mind describing what this movie is about? Yeah, without going too spoilery here. Um, this is a story following the small, I believe, six-person crew of the Nostromos, which is a, uh, a cargo ship that's wandering from what is called the Solomon system back towards Earth. Uh, the world building is very subtle and very in the background, uh, which is enjoyable and it leaves some really cool questions um, unanswered uh, that... Yeah, I'm just very curious about throughout the whole thing. Um, but they answer 
a distress signal. They're actually awoken rudely from their cryo sleep on their way back to Earth, uh, about halfway through their trip, and they have to veer off and answer this signal off on a a remote planet that they have never been to before, and shenanigans ensue, as they say. I don't know if I want to go any further there. Yeah, I think that's a great place to end. I couldn't help but, James, I think the first time both of us saw this movie was when we were both rooming together in Texas, and... That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember really enjoying this film, but I would say it wasn't truly until the second time watching it that I really had a deeper appreciation for all of the work that goes in. Usually when I see a movie I like, the first time around it's my raw impression from the story, but the second time around I'm able to really, because I already know generally what's gonna happen, I'm able to focus less on the exact story and more on the details. I'm able to pick up more subtlety my second time around watching it. And like you were saying, James, the design of the costumes, the the condensed uh, air, the breath on the helmets. Uh, even at the beginning, we see this egg tube and we see inside this organic material some living thing writhing around. And it's just astounding to me. Um, there's a dissection scene. I'm not going to go much more into that, but they poke and prod at these this fleshy tissue. And um, the attention to detail is astounding to me. And I couldn't help but compare this movie to the first Star Wars film. And I gotta be honest with you, James. I think the first Star Wars movie is a classic. I think there's a lot it does really well, but the stuff it does really well is stuff that's been done before, just packaged in a better way. I would say in terms of the craft, in terms of the story, in terms of the world building, in terms of the characters, I think this is a better movie than Star Wars. I would agree. I think the tone is very, it's very focused. It knows what it wants to be. Star Wars Episode Four, I feel like, is trying to grab at a lot of different elements, as you said. So we get fantasy elements, we get sci-fi elements, we get action-adventure elements. Uh, there's a little bit of romance sprinkled in. Alien knows exactly what, it's want, what it wants to be. There's no meandering at all. There's no uh, tonal backlash. There's no uh, tonal whiplash, sorry. There's no confusion about this, what this movie wants to be. It yeah. knows precisely what it wants to be, and it does, it, it executes the genre of horror and thriller better than pretty much every other horror or thriller that I've ever seen, Yeah, which is why this is also a classic um, and yeah. why it is, it is well-renowned in the genre. The previous horror film that I had seen before this one, Daniel, was also with you whenever we watched A Quiet Place. Mm. And I want to compare this to A Quiet Place for a brief second because I think a lot of our audience members who have skimmed the surface of horror film have probably seen A Quiet Place and appreciate it, which yeah. is right. I mean, it's, it's a good movie. However, critics of A Quiet Place have said that the, the scare, the fear element, the dread element of A Quiet Place is removed because the creature is seen in the first five minutes of the movie. Alien, you don't see the creature. I mean... You don't see the real creature very clearly ever in this mm. film for yeah. very long until maybe the last three minutes of the movie. Yeah. And um, it's astounding to me how much dread is created just by not knowing what the thing looks like. And I don't know the anatomy of a horror movie as well as other genres, but I think that's something that Alien does really well 
is its deliberate pacing uh, throughout, slowly building up in dread as it moves. Um, another horror convention that I think this movie avoids very deftly, I would say, is the way the movie starts. Uh, the cold vacuum of space, it's empty. The sound is atmospheric and chilling. It's not, hey, me and Chad are going to go to Johnny's Lake House uh, in haunted West Virginia uh, this weekend. You want to come with Annabelle? Yeah, sure. Sounds like it'll be a lot of fun. Romance is afoot. So I feel like that's how a lot of horror movies start off, is we want to bump up the contrast and say, oh, let's make things fun and innocent and maybe a little bit like tap into the vices of our characters a little bit at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, it just it feels like uh, a teen drama, a lot of horror movies. This movie starts uh, Alien. It starts with the tone well established. They yeah. say we don't need we don't need any of these ordinary startups we don't need any contrast we need to establish right away that this is what the movie's about and i think that i think we get the full picture right away yeah wouldn't you agree i agree i can't pretend to know all the reasons why but i think primarily why a lot of horror movies like to use teenagers or young people young adults is because they can get away with stupid they can get away with these ill-advised decision makings impulsivity maybe get that sex scene in there for some money you know, get some yep. tickets. But uh, while this isn't a perfect movie in all of those regards, there is a resourcefulness that these adult characters have. This is an R-rated film. And for today's standards, it's it's a lot more tame. It seems more PG-13 than R yeah. in terms of its content. But the characters are incredibly resourceful, and it does a lot of things that were groundbreaking for its time. And unfortunately, I feel still stand as an improvement in some ways especially compared to a lot of horror movies today i don't know if i would constitute this as a horror movie i always find myself struggling to find the difference between horror and thriller but i certainly am a big thriller fan though i may not be a big horror guy i love thrillers and yeah. this shows me why uh it lingers um and it has faith in the questions that you're asking, the assumptions you're making. Every time a character charges through a fog-infused hallway or some of our vision is obscured, we think the this creature could be around any corner. And we don't know what's happening. And our characters don't even know. They're trying to grapple with a force they barely understand that is more strong and powerful than any of them realize. And uh, as that horror slowly unfurls itself and we learn more, I, I just, it's so well done. The opening scene is a perfect illustration of what this movie is because, you know, again, this isn't spoiling anything, but the first few minutes, we don't see anyone, any living thing, where we see the blackness of space. We see a lone ship cruising along. We see the empty hallways. We get these beautiful shots playing with the space. We see the rooms, but they're far away and they're using the hallway as a kind of an additional frame within a frame. And the music's soft and innocent, but there's also this, there's a sinister overtone to it that, eh, this is kind of a fake happiness, the fake peace. And that opening sequence, we finally rest on these cryosleep pods that open up. So before we even get a living thing, this movie slowly unravels 
pieces of itself slowly and it gets small and then gets bigger and bigger. And then at the end, it actually does the opposite. It becomes smaller and smaller scale. So the opening is a perfect introduction to the movie. And I'll be honest with you, James, for, for the first third of this movie, it doesn't really feel like a horror or thriller so much as it does a slice of life. We're here with these, I think they're miners, and they talk like blue-collar workers do. They're just hanging out, shooting the breeze, talking about bonuses and wanting to get paid. They're tired. Money's kind of on everyone's mind. They don't even want to explore this beacon that they overhear. They're just like, I, we're not paid for this. And they're like, well, our contract says this. And I just can't help but see the people in this sci-fi obscure universe. And it's amazing. Yes, I agree. The people in this film, like a lot of the things in Alien, are very, very grounded. Mm. And uh, once again, to compare to <laughs> uh, the first Star Wars movie, A New Hope, these people are believable, and the mechanisms surrounding them are believable because they are not sleek, they're not intricate, they're not um, mystical in any way. They're very Spartan. They're very practical. Uh, everything is very lived in and human feeling uh, aboard this cargo ship where most of the movie takes place. And it's because of that believability that I am able to be sucked into the suspense of it all. Uh, and, and I do think comparing this movie to A New Hope is kind of weird because they are different genres. Right. But if there was a monster in a new hope i wouldn't be nearly as afraid because well we have two space wizards in our in our ship uh, right. we have people with a bunch of guns we have a big hairy man that's twice as strong and as tall as um any other person so like the fear is different and and that's why this sci-fi is more believable because the people are more grounded and the technology is more grounded the soft subtle world building in the background makes me see that this is well, this could just be as much of a reality as our reality if there was long-distance space travel involved. Yeah. Um, and because of that, I'm sucked in by the characters, even their small conflicts that seem to be kind of pointless, though some of the conflict does actually wind up coming up again later. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I, I get drawn in for that reason. The one thing I loved about Star Wars that this movie does also have is the... We, we talked about the set design and the props already, but I love the used old technology. The fact that, oh my gosh, if I see another hologram in a sci-fi movie, I will barf. I am so sick of holograms. I'm so sick of, oh, let me consult the computer. And then these holograms show up and then they, you know, wiggle their hands around and the holograms move and manipulate. And I don't even know what they're doing. And the actor my doesn't know what Tony they're doing. Stark and I just invented time travel. <laughs> but this... It, it even though this is a sci-fi movie, the technology and the crew is limited. It's grounded, like you said. The characters are grounded, so is the technology. There's an AI called Mother. We're not even told a lot. There's very little exposition that isn't naturally woven into the dialogue that we have to piece together. I feel like I'm sitting in the room with them. I have to figure that on my own. I have to make sense of this world. It's like if I got teleported from here in the podcast studio over into the Nostronomo and I had to forcefully, you know, kind of figure it out on the fly. That's what it feels like. I have to do work for it. 
but the technology is also very limited. Mother, there are several inquiries that crew members make of her, you know, trying to find out spoilers for their own plot, essentially. And Mother's like, does not compute, you know, or the query is too vague. And it, I just, I don't know. I, I could go further into that, but I love how limited things are and how yes. naturally the story seems to play itself out and the people and the various reactions, how they react to conflict. There really are very, I, I can't imagine anyone that's stupid in this movie. There's no one that makes decisions where I go, Oh my gosh, you fool. Why did you do that? Yeah. At least without, without a grounded explanation, right? There's horror movie tropes like splitting up or one person going off on their own, but it's still at a stage where based on what they know of the threat, based on what they know of the size of the threat, it makes sense to me. You know, I would not be opposed to doing that if I was in their situation, if yes. that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's the key there is is the way that dread is built up is by this groundedness, this believability. So whenever there are defeats, they're believable. And when there are victories, they're almost impossible. Yeah. Um, which makes you just sit on the edge of your seat the entire time. Uh, I think that's just a tremendous way to build up dread in a horror or thriller movie. Um, not that there are other ways, but Alien is just such a such a good example of dread. Yeah. Out of five stars, what would you rate this? I'm going to give Alien a four and a half out of five. Dang it. You cop I'll copy and paste that. Four and a half out Yeehaw, of five. Partner. And we'll talk more about those flaws in our spoiler review. Let's go ahead and dive into that. Want to join the conversation? Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Casually Critical Podcast to get the inside scoop on future episodes. Feel free to message us on either platform to join in the casual correspondence or provide feedback on the show. Now it's time to dive into our spoiler review. Okay, James, I pushed the buttons on my 80s computer. I've typed in the code to mother asking for spoiler access, and she has granted it to me. So let's go ahead and break this open. Okay. Right out of the gate, I'm curious to know, James, based on what you know of horror tropes and conventions, uh, what works in this movie? Well, I wanted to go back and, and say what I um, add more to what I said about comparing A Quiet Place to this movie, because we see mm. the monster in A Quiet Place in the first five seconds, five minutes. In Alien, we don't see the monster for the first 45 minutes, probably. But here's the thing. Whenever we do, it doesn't look the same the next time we see it. That's true. This is genius monster design in the sense that it is constantly evolving and there's good story reasons as well, but it continues to keep those scares fresh and that fear even more deep because every time there's a confrontation with the alien, there's a new fear of like, well, what if it's bigger this time? Or like, what if like, like what if it's got some new ability or cap like it's capable of something different now that it's, it's grown out of its, its, it's smaller shell. It just, it adds even more horror to the monster. It's so, it's so refreshing to see, uh, just stepping outside of the conventional monsters or slashers in a horror movie and just yeah. saying, what if we had a monster that just kept changing as it went, kept getting more and more scary and evolving and growing. I yeah. love that. There, that scene I mentioned in the non-spoiler review where it's like, Oh, let's send a guy out on his own. A guy walks around. It's right after the alien hatches from that guy's chest and then disappears. And it's a small little guy. And so they're looking for it. And then there's a fake out jump scare where there's just a cat. And that cat actually has importance later on in the plot. 
Yeah. Uh, and so it's not necessarily a cheap jump scare. It has purpose to it, actually. But they send out that guy on his own to find the cat. And you'd think on the surface that's stupid. Why would they send him alone into a ship with an alien life form? Well, the alien's a little guy and they need the people to catch it, but they're not trying to kill it. So if that guy encounters the alien, he's not going to be overwhelmed. But they learn later, as we do, that this alien species grows at an alarming rate. It, it, it just really, really fast. And so... But they don't know that. They, they don't know what they're dealing with, except for uh, the science officer played by Ian Holm, Bilbo Baggins himself. And so <laughs> uh, I, love, I love that. And them splitting up, even when they do it later in the movie and the alien gets bigger and badder, there's always a plan. It's not just, well, let's, let's split up and find, see what we can find. You know, it just... It, <laughs> They, it's because they say, okay, we know the alien is in the air vents and that's how it's getting around. So we know it's limitations. We know it can't be everywhere, but we know it navigates through here. So we're going to seal it off and then we're going to systematically try and find it. That was so smart. Right. Like that's what I would do if, yeah. if I had a big brain and I was stuck on a ship with this alien, I was like, well, yeah, we got to seal off each individual. If we have control over the vents, then like that's how we're going to do it to keep Dallas protected as he's navigating through these ventilation shafts. Right. And it makes sense. And then the horror of the limitation of their technology. It's like, oh, I have a holographic image of Dallas. Oh, no, it's getting staticky. It's like, well, no, they all they see is a dot. They don't know which direction he's facing. And when he starts mm -hmm. fleeing from the alien, he's actually running towards it in a way. That's something you can only pull off with the limited technology of the sci-fi universe. You know, yes. you couldn't have that if it was fancy holograms because then it would come across as cheap and stupid. The other thing I want to mention on the writing side, which I learned later in a trivia thing, and I thought it was brilliant, is that um, the writing for the alien itself, the face hugger, uh, the fact that they try and slice off its leg and acid kind of spits out. The writers had this issue before they came up with this where they wanted to make it so that they couldn't just shoot the alien. They had to figure out another way to kill it, but they didn't want to make the alien an unstoppable killing machine. So that's when they came up with the idea of acid blood, you know, shooting it yeah. wouldn't work because then you'd be hurting the ship and therefore endangering yourself. So this brilliant storytelling problem solving of figuring out these creative ways to limit what the characters can do to this thing. Yes, I agree. And and another um, you you mentioned story uh, horror conventions um, before another interesting way that they depart from some tropes. Uh, of horror is they these these people are smart first of all and it is initially assumed that it's because of the greed of ash the science officer that they are in the situation they're in in, in his avarice in his desire for power to become a famous scientist that brings aliens back but the twist later on to establish ash as a robot that is commanded to bring the alien back that's so brilliant and it it ties back, like I mentioned before, it ties back to the conversations, the grumblings about the company they work for. Um, and like, man, they just don't care about us. Like, when do we, when are we going to get paid more? You know, the lower paid workers are complaining about this company. And I just, at first, at first glance, I'm like, oh, they're just making small talk. They're establishing the characters. These two have a little more gripes with the company they work for. But it turns out, yeah, this company is quite sinister. And this AI, this robot that um, who is Ash is tasked to preserve this this alien at whatever cost. 
that just creates a whole new level of horror. It bumps things up because not only do we feel unsafe on our ship, we're also going to feel unsafe whenever we return back to Earth, if we survive. Right. Because this corporation has motivations that are so beyond any of our understanding. So, like, uh, it, it really just makes you feel like everything's against you at the end. Yeah. And it really magnifies the horror element, not just the claustrophobia of being on the ship, but it really does feel like the entire world is against our characters. No one, even one of the crewmates, wants them to win at any cost. And it, it really feels like they're the only ones that want to stop this thing and they're going to die. And the survivability element is increased. And I'm glad they included Ash because he was not actually in the original drafts of this movie. Oh. But it makes it personal. It adds weight to it. And even when it's revealed that he is a robot, or I think more accurately an android, it really doesn't remove the humanity his character brought because there's this coldness in him, but it's still motivated by something we can see in ourselves. This right. horror of they don't even know a lot about each other. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't is, detract from crazy. it doesn't detract from the the themes that this movie touches on about um human greed or human pride, you know, or you know, hubris, yeah. I guess would be the proper term. Because yeah, even though this guy is a robot and he's just obeying his commands, those commands do come from a person at the end of the day. So yeah, I just I love yeah. that. At the beginning of the third act, it adds that extra little action break that we need to keep things moving along where they confront ash and they fight him and then you know parker clubs his head off and i'm like what because i have forgotten yeah. completely about the first like my first viewing of this movie and so just whenever that came up again i was like this movie just got so much better in my like head ranking i actually remembered that twist i remembered that but i didn't remember other parts of this movie as well yeah. which was interesting there's all these little details um side note Little things in the background you don't catch immediately, like whenever Ripley confronts Ash uh, about his odd behavior, one of the things he looks at and then turns off before she approaches him is an embryo, which reveals that he knew the whole time that Kane was impregnated, oh. but was withholding that information. So he knew exactly what that facehugger was doing. He just wasn't telling anyone about it. Oh, wow. Or the fact that before Brett dies, one of the shots, and I'm told this, I didn't actually see for myself, but in the rafters, you can see the alien kind of cuddled up into a ball, kind of lurking and waiting. No. Just those little things that are, it's just so thick with detail. Yes. You know, there's a love to it. I want to change topics a bit to something I didn't expect to talk about in this review until I did some further digging. Um, the theme of sexuality in this movie is quite apparent. Not only the fact that this final survivor is a female, which is a horror movie trope. It's uh, the final girl, I think is what it's called. Yeah. Uh, usually the lady at the end who's the most emotional, the most screaming, uh, but she somehow survives. And while they don't ignore that trope and they lean into it a little, ironically, the woman that's at the end, Ripley, is not the typical person that would survive a horror movie. She is rules-centered. She's very strict. Uh, she's very much like rules before people. That type of character usually dies off really quick in horror movies. Mm -hmm. You know, the person. And that protagonist is usually the least fun person to have. 
but somehow we still root for her and she takes initiative. It's not rules matter first. It's, Hey, I, I, I care about my people. That's why I'm sticking to these rules. We have procedures, but in the moment, when the rules kind of go out the window and they discover their corporations against them, she still has plans and strategies. She still, there's a mission. She is not done yet. And there's even that thematic symbol of the face hugger. Uh, apparently earlier in development, the two writers, it, it's a blatant symbolic uh, portrayal of rape. This creature that forcefully impregnates a person. And hmm. they deliberately wanted to make the victim a man because Obviously, it would be very disturbing if it was a female character. Yeah, that would kind of throw subtlety out the window, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. But this man who did not ask for this at all is forcefully impregnated and killed by the offspring that he births. Uh, and I think that's a brilliant way of introducing that theme very subtly. But then later, and we are the first critics, we are not the first critics to call this out, but. There's a scene at the end when Ripley kind of undresses and there's a few shots in there where I went, okay, all right, this, this doesn't need to be in there. And what I understand the motivation of that scene once was we have this illusion of safety. Yes. Ripley's one. And I even forgot that sequence at the end where the aliens actually in the shuttle with her. Mm -hmm. uh, you think it's the ending. And then it keeps going, and you're like, um, "The credits are uh, supposed can, to happen can, by you now." You can roll the credits now, yeah, please. Yeah. We're done. Um, I gotta go pee. And <laughs> then they're like, "Nope." And when she's at her most vulnerable physically, and when she's in the shuttle, a tighter, smaller environment, the aliens there, and you think, "How the heck is she gonna get out of this one?" And she does, and it's brilliant how she does so. But I, I felt like that. Uh, there were just some shots that I just felt called attention to things that just didn't need to be called attention to. It felt very exploitative. Mm -hmm. Um, but I want to know your thoughts, James. Yeah, I agree with that. I think I think that's one of the one of the lowlights of this movie. Um, there there are some shots that I'm like that angle was not necessary, or the amount of time lingering was not necessary. Even though this movie is very slow in the way that its shots play out most of the time. Yeah. Um, it's that that I think brings this movie down to a 4.5 and then also just the pacing in general in some areas mm. where it doesn't need to be as slow as it does. I think the pacing benefits the most, like you said, in the very last scene in which things start to slow down and Ripley is getting ready for cryo sleep and we're like, all right, cool. We'll hope that she gets picked up by a shuttle somewhere whenever she enters the the Milky Way galaxy or wherever she, whatever, wherever she's trying to hit before right. um, she runs out of energy. But I do agree. I think for the most part, this female protagonist is very well portrayed, but I do think that the perfection that they were so close to was detracted from in those last, in those last moments. Right. And Ridley Scott, it's shocking to me because based on what I've, what I've read, there was a lot of care put into the choosing of Sigourney Weaver, who at this point when she made this movie was very unknown. No one really knew her at all. Ridley Scott brought in female production consultants on his casting. You know, what would be a woman that would have good screen presence and helping him choose the right person for the role. 
and then they all kind of settled on Sigourney. So there's great care in that. However, there's some things that were considered for this movie that weren't included. Like they wanted uh, a sex scene between Ripley and the character of Dallas. They wanted this idea that in order to deal with their urges that these crew members would just casually engage in sex a lot. And that didn't need to be in this movie as evidenced by the fact that that doesn't show up at all in, Mm -hmm. in this film at all. Or the idea that at the very end when she does kind of undress the idea that the, the alien, the beast was waiting for that as kind of a beauty and the beast type of thing, which I keep thinking about these ideas and I think about how there's a lot in terms of the sexuality, in terms of the theme that is done well, that is done with subtlety, that is done with care. And at the other hand, there's also these things that seem very exploitative, these things that are very unnecessary. And actually, uh, what's really interesting is in the sequel, Aliens, which I have not seen, not yet, uh, James Cameron directed that movie. And he actually mentions that specific scene from this movie where she undresses. And he says, I hated that scene. When I saw it, I vowed if I became a director, I would never make women shoot scenes like that again. What? This guy made the Titanic. (laughs) I'm not sure. I'm not sure where he draws the line there. I'll be honest with you. I have no idea. That's pretty interesting. But I do think, I do think this movie is an interesting conversation piece on how do you portray and deal with themes of sex and sexuality at what point do you cross the line and i really do think uh like our our next episode we talk a little bit more about how one's values do inform the story that they're telling and i think in this movie that's an interesting conversation opener i don't claim to know anything about ridley scott or his motivations for that scene Um, but I, I try to assume generally and just hope that there is some sort of bottom line that needs to be met by the producers, Mm. um, or by someone in the higher up that says, well, where's the sex appeal in this movie? If we're cutting the sex scene, then like, come on, where are we going to get our sexual kicks? And Ridley Scott says, okay, fine. Um, so that's, you know, that's what I want to believe is true. And that Ridley Scott, um, it seems like you said had a very careful way of portraying his female protagonist and so it does seem kind of counteractive to his his motivations up to that point um because i do think ridley scott um his his portrayal of ripley and sigourney weaver's acting has been cited for years and years and years as one of the best female action heroes in yeah. any movie and i haven't seen aliens too but i hear aliens but i hear it's more action oriented and she still gets a lot of the spotlight in that movie yeah um so maybe we could review it next halloween i would Absolutely. I, would, I would like to see it at some point because i hear that it is just as good as alien in some areas so daniel you always have things to say about the way female protagonists are portrayed in movies <laughs> how do you think how do you think sigourney weaver does with ripley in this movie When I say that the ideal female protagonist should be nothing more than a character, a good character, I think a well-written female protagonist is just simply that, a well-written character. Say what you will about femininity and what that looks like. Make a good character first, then add a female actress to it. This is the textbook definition of what that looks like. The textbook definition. 
She does take charge towards the end of the movie. She does commandeer some men under her. She has issues with a man, namely Ash, before we learn he's actually a robot. He's not a man. <laughs> uh, but there's also the character of Dallas, the captain, the guy who's ruggedly handsome, the guy who takes charge, you know, the guy that is kind of the red herring, the guy that we think is going to be the protagonist but ends up right. not being. But even so, there's never a moment where she has this air of, I know more than you. And there's never this air of, oh, I'm a weak, emotional woman. I know nothing. I submit to you, a greater man. No, there's none of that. It's just, we're working together. He's my boss. These people are underneath me. I'm the third in command. When they're gone, I'm in charge. And this is why I'm making these decisions. Everything she does in this movie is motivated by her character and the world around her and where she fits into that world. It is not motivated by, oh, she woman, therefore she right, or she wrong. Instead, it's simply, she's a character who happens to be a female, and she's very well written, and she has enough complexity that the story warrants that really enriches every moment she's on screen. The last thing I'll say about Ripley, I really appreciate what you said earlier about she's not your typical final girl. Um, she's not your typical horror movie character at all. And I think that's what makes her so special. I think there's a lot of movie viewers who are very safety-oriented, very protocol-oriented, very order-oriented in general, that I think feel seen through Ripley. Yeah. She's not reckless. She's not giving smart talk. She's not um, smoking a stogie and kicking aliens in the face. She's not a martyr either. She's not the no. guy who says, I go on. You guys go on without me. Yeah. She is, she is, hey, I'm following protocol and her motivations come toe to toe with other characters' motivations. And that's really cool and really interesting and textured, but it's never built up from the beginning that she was always right. Um, and mm. I, I do feel like I am, I am rewording some of the things that you've said, but just the way that she is portrayed is unlike any other horror or thriller movie character that I've seen before, regardless of the gender politics of it all. It's just really fresh and well done. And I'm going to keep coming back to this movie for that reason and a few others, but mostly that reason. <laughs> okay, guys, we're Daniel and James, and you've been listening to our podcast, Casually Critical. Remember, in space, no one can hear you scream, but on our social media, we can all see you comment. So do it, and goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>